I did not enjoy the recognition. I would literally hide from newspaper reporters after races, but I was competitive and I wanted to win and I wanted to set course records and I always wanted to be the best at everything I did. So I think that was what really drove me was I was the best in our school and then I wanted to be the best in the state and then looked at being the best in the nation potentially. Even back then, I loved the process. I always loved to run fast. I've never been someone who's been good at taking easy days. And yeah, and I can trace that back all the way back to seventh grade. Just like to go hard. <laughs> That's Kate Landau. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs> What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Kate Landau. Kate is a 43-year-old mom and physician's assistant who most recently finished 14th at the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon in 2.34.07. Last year, she ran a personal best of 2.31.56 to finish 13th at the Boston Marathon, and the morning we recorded this episode, she ran a 2.34 marathon completely on her own five-time All-American at Georgetown who competed in the 1996 Olympic trials in the 10,000, Kate returned to running in 2013 after a long time away from the sport and found her racing legs again a few years later. This woman is incredibly talented, but Kate has an amazing story that extends far beyond her racing accomplishments. In this conversation, we talked about how she got her start in the sport developing an eating disorder early in high school, something that she battled along with injuries well into her adult years. She told me about her desire to be the best and go hard at everything she did from the time that she was a young girl. Kate opened up about when she finally allowed herself to feel self-worth outside of running, why she's enjoying the sport now more than ever in her 40s, what she tells young girls who might be on a similar path to the one that she took, as well as how she guides parents and coaches of kids who are struggling with disordered eating and aren't sure where to turn. She also talks about balancing being a mom with a high-stress job and training at a high level, the importance of setting a good example for her daughter and why that's a driving force in her life, what it means to know that sharing her story helps others deal with their own struggles, and a lot more. This is a packed one, folks, so let's dive right in with Kate Landau. All right, Kate Landau, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, Mario. Thanks so much for having me. I, I love your podcast. I listen to it every week. I think I've listened to every single episode. <laughs> so going back. No way. That means a lot. What's your favorite episode so far? Oh, well. To put you um, on the spot. Yeah. Well, the Aaron Finn one, which was a recent one, I um, was really great because I could relate to so much of what she said. And it just felt like she was kind of telling my story <laughs> and then um the the interview with gags was pretty awesome too because he was the head coach of georgetown when i was at georgetown back in the day so um those were my t- my two favorite but i think there's been so many great ones the amelia boone one i mean like there's just been so many so i uh i became a total podcast <laughs> fan in the past in the past year when my commute is like 45 minutes each way. So I listen and then I 
so I listen to at least two or three podcasts a day. <laughs> so. Well, that means a lot to me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What other shows do you listen to? Um, so I listen to the Rambling Runner and Matt Chittum was doing um, the Road to Olympic Trials. Mm-hmm. And then I listen to Ali on the Run and C. Tali Run and um, Lindsay Hines and the whole um, the Up and Running <laughs> and Let's Run and um, Rogue Running and uh, the... Um, so it's for the long run, I think it's called. Like, yeah, I, there's a there's a long list. <laughs> so <laughs> it's they're all running podcasts. <laughs> That's a pretty solid lineup and good company to be in. So I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Since you mentioned the gags episode, and in our exchange prior to setting this up, you mentioned how you were at Georgetown the same time that he was coaching there, even though he didn't coach you directly, but he was always supportive of you, not just as a runner, but as a person. I'd love to dig into that a little bit and learn more about what you meant by that exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, a huge part of my story and kind of the reason I, I feel like it's worthy of sharing is that a lot of my life has been, was, um, I dealt with a a severe eating disorder and, and kind of in college, people knew that, um, but didn't really know what to do about it back then. But Gags always was, he saw my, the depression that I was dealing with. He saw the, the pain of the eating disorder and he just had this gentleness and he couldn't kind of step in and, and really give his opinion directly, but he had indirect ways, um, you know, hugs or looks or encouragement that he gave that made me feel like I was okay, even if I was injured or even if I wasn't performing, you know, as well as I was supposed to be as a scholarship athlete. So, um, he was, he's just like a, a big, teddy bear. (laughs) And, and, um, I know, I know he uh, related sometimes things, you know, just from being a a father himself. And so I felt more like, a a daughter, you know, rather than just an, as an athlete, I guess with gags. So it was a, a special, he's a special guy. Were you able to appreciate that at the time or did it take you a few years before, you were able to really just appreciate that kind of support that you were getting while you were going through a tough period in your life? Uh, Yeah, I definitely think it was more looking back that I realized that Um, in the moment. I definitely felt kind of a different relationship with gags than with my own coach, but, um, but I didn't really appreciate it. I was in, I was pretty much in the depth, of, you know, despair during those years. So I didn't really see outside of that little box that I was in. So I want to dig into all of that later in this conversation, but let's start with the here and now. As we were setting up this call, we ended up pushing it back about a half an hour because you ran a virtual marathon this morning. And I'm super curious, how did it go? <laughs> it went pretty well. So the the goal was to try to run negative, you know, negative splits because I never do that. I always go out too hot and and die. Um, and I put on the alpha flies that I got 
from the Olympic trials for the first time this morning and wore them and I went out too hot again. So I kind of <laughs> like uh, James McCurdy's my coach and he told me, you know, go out six minute pace, nothing faster. And I went out 550 for the first, <laughs> you know, for the first half of it. So for the, I came through the first half marathon in, in like 550, 551 pace. Um, and then I died a little bit, not terribly. So I ran two thirty four forty eight. Um, so it was it was good, but you know I definitely had many moments there where I was just like, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know. So and so I had to really kind of like search for my for, search for my why. Um, and uh, and I think it came down to like I said I was going to do this, and I'm um, you know I, I my coach said I was going to do this, and I. Um, and I felt kind of like I, I I wanted to live up to that. And if I inspire people, that's kind of the goal. Like, because for for me, it it doesn't honestly mean that much to run a two thirty four something virtual marathon. I don't know. It just, um, but like it if it inspires others, and um, you know, yeah. So I just I just stuck it out. And I also, you know, I, I always think about my daughter when I'm when I'm running and starting to think about quitting. Um, and I was just like, I, I brought her to camp today so I could do this. So I'm going to do it. So I, I finished it up. Well, it's damn inspiring to me because I've run a little bit faster than you in the marathon. And the thought of just going out my door on my own and running a 234, and I'm in decent shape, does not sound at all appealing uh, or <laughs> or anything that I think I could do with relative ease. So I'm super impressed by that. So you were out there by yourself. Did you come up with your own course? How did you lay out the logistics of it? So there's um, a bike path that's in a Puyallup, which is like 30 minutes away from Tacoma. And it's, it's relatively flat. And I, I've done a lot of long runs on that. And so today I kind of just decided rather than go all the way out and all the way back, I would do two out and backs um, just so that I could get some fluid in <laughs> after about, you know, halfway. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it's, it was, you know, slightly up on the way out and slightly down on the way back. And I did that twice in a little bit, a little bit more. So, um, yeah, so that's, and I used two watches to verify that it was accurate. Cause I hate, I hate feeling like my GPS is off and I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm not like, you know, accurately, um, you know, I'm saying I ran something that I actually didn't do. So the two watches were in sync. So it made me feel like this is more uh, accurate, but I didn't use map my run or anything. I'm like, as I, as I told you, when we were setting up this interview, I'm technologically, um, very behind. <laughs> so I don't use, I don't use any apps or anything. I don't use Strava or, or map my run. So, <laughs> But that was what, like three minutes or so off of your PR, which you set just last year at the age of 42? Yeah. So last year, Boston, 2019, I ran 231.56, I, I think. So, yeah. And it was uh, not too far off what I ran at the at the trials, but, you know, much flatter course. So let's talk about the trials. You were 14th. You're in 234.07 on what was not a flat and fast course. Tell me a little bit about that race. How did you feel about the performance and were you surprised at all to finish that high and run that fast? Um, 
honestly, like um, I went into the trials with the goal of getting to the hotel room and relaxing because this past year has been like just a roller coaster of chaos and stress. And so that was, it was just a really a mini vacation. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't too work, you know, too nervous about it. It was kind of just a long run in the build up to Boston, um, this year. And so that's kind of going into it. And then, um, the actual race, I, I didn't honestly feel the hills. I felt the wind, um, even though I kind of really did a pretty good job in the beginning staying tucked in. Um, I didn't feel the hills because Tacoma's quite hilly and I'd been training, you know, pretty on significant hilly terrain. Um, and, uh, of course I might, my legs felt fine. I had major GI problems and had to use the porta potty and, you know, had more issues than just having to stop at the porta potty. And, um, it, that was what kind of really slowed me down the last half. Cause that's all I could think about. Um, and so nothing, you know, I think my body was in, in much better shape than the time showed. And, um, James McCurdy had kind of suggested that I, he thought I could run 233 or so. And I, or no, maybe he said even faster than that. I can't remember what he said, but I was, I was kind of like thinking I could run maybe 233, 235. And that's what I did. So that, um, it wasn't too surprising. And I, I think, um, I was, you know, top, top goal, time, goal place was for, um, top, 10, you know, but that would be like way or a huge reach goal. Um, so it, none of, none of it was like too surprising, but I was happy, you know, I was happy that I finished because I definitely thought about dropping out. And, um, <laughs> so I think that's what the, the biggest part that I came out of it with was that, um, that I am mentally stronger than I give my credit, myself credit for. So if you hadn't had the stomach issues toward the end of the race, do you think you would have picked up a few more places? Um, I, I, I actually was in the porta potty for 50 seconds, according to my GPS. So it, and I know it wasn't just a quick stop. But, um, and, um, so, and I think I probably would have, yeah. Cause I wasn't even racing towards the end. I was just thinking about, I, you know, thinking about the fact that I had crap on my legs, you know, like, and that, that I was hoping that I wouldn't have to stop again and like feeling embarrassed, but, um, I was not focusing on, on racing at all at that point. Where does that performance stack up for you on the list of mental wins? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that's probably got to be the top, the best, you know, the best, the mental, mental strength victory because, <laughs> because, um, yeah, there was so many reasons I could have stopped. And again, um, what really kept me going was thinking, you know, I had asked several people back home to help watch my daughter. I left my daughter in Washington and I had gone to Atlanta and thinking about those things. It was like, I can't drop out and I can't go back you know, back to Washington and, um, after asking people for help and, and not have finished. So I am, I am proud of that. Um, cause, cause that was, uh, 
a literal shit show. (laughs) (laughs) You competed at the 96 Olympic trials in Atlanta on the track in the 10,000. I'm curious, what did it mean for you and how did it feel to return to Atlanta 24 years later for the marathon trials being at a very different point of your life? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You know, um, this, this one definitely meant a lot more, um, back in 1996, I was still so much in the depths of an, an eating disorder that I don't think it really even phased me that I was at the trials or what that meant. And I barely have memories of it. Um, but to come back after everything I've been through and be able to do it again, um, the real significance is just, I just never thought I was going to run again, you know? Um, and to be able to, to compete at a pretty high level, um, after what I went through. Yeah. It's, it's, a it's pretty crazy. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, I can't even quite express. It was a similar feeling I had, um, when I was at Hayward fields at the Eugene marathon, um, I had in 1996, I had come in second at, in the 10,000 at Hayward field at NCAAs. And it was that similar feeling like this, you know, I am just so grateful to be back running again. I never could imagine that I would be doing it. And 24 years later, you know, I mean, like, I'm, yeah, I don't, I don't like to say that I'm proud of myself because I don't like, I don't want to be a prideful person, but I'm, I'm feel good that I've gotten through what I've gotten through. <laughs> so, Where are you at right now? You mentioned how the trials was supposed to be part of a buildup toward Boston. Obviously, that race has been postponed. You ran 234 marathon on your own this morning. Just take me through like the current status of things and how you're thinking about the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll be... 44 September 13th, which is the day before Boston is supposed to take place. But I, I really honestly have in my doubts about that taking place. Um, you know, still planning for it if it happens, but, um, you know, the way things are looking, it's highly doubtful, I think. Um, so I, I really, I just love the process of running and I, I think racing is something I, started to do locally just to kind of, you know, see what I could do. And then I started to do it at a higher level, honestly, because I could make some extra money doing that. And I, but I, what keeps me going is just the training. I love long runs. I love like the first 16 miles of my run today. I was just in this flow state cruising consistently hit, you know, hitting five fifty um, pace. And I, I love that feeling. Um, so racing is something that I enjoy, but it's not the, the reason I run. So, um, I guess what I'm getting at is I don't know if I'll ever really get the opportunity to race another major marathon. I, I hope that I do, but I kind of have to just have a pretty flexible attitude that might not happen. And, you know, the 231 at Boston might be my forever PR. And I'm, I'm okay with that because I just, I, I've learned, I think through the roller coaster of my life that 
I can't really worry about the future too much. And when I do, it just um, causes anxiety that I don't like that feeling, you know. Um, so I'm just kind of running because I love to run, training hard because I love to train hard. And if there's races to run next year, um, I'll be signing up for them. But if, if they don't happen, I need to be okay. Like I, you know, I need to be okay with that. Do you feel like at this point of your life, you would be okay with it if you weren't able to race again for reasons out of your control? Um, I, I do honestly, um, again, cause I love to, I love the process of training, um, because I am going to be 44 soon. And, um, and also because there's a, there's a consistent pull from one part of my life that says I shouldn't be running so much. And I, this is not, shouldn't be my priority, uh, or a priority. It's not the priority. Um, so I'm always battling with that anyway. Um, and I know at some point running at a, at a very high level is going to come to an end. So, um, again, I'm not ready to like, let it go now because I'm still running well and enjoying it and getting invited to races and really loving the experience uh, when I go to races and hopefully inspiring people. So I'm not ready to let it go, but if there aren't races in the next year or two, um, you know, I, yeah, I have to be ready to let it go. But I, I think I was just texting with James earlier. I mean, I could see myself doing ultras, ultra marathons in five years when my daughter is a little bit older and I can go out and do longer runs. And, um, you know, so I, there will all be, always be something. And I honestly think within, within a year and a half to two years, I do believe things will be back to normal. So you started running early on in life and I want to get into that here in a bit, but is it safe to say that right now, approaching age 44 later this year, you're enjoying it more than you ever have? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Cause there, for me, there's not, it's no longer a pressure. Um, and there's no longer really an ego attached to it. Um, it's just something that I love to do and it's, um, a way of healthy living that I want to set as an example for my daughter. Um, so Absolutely. Yeah. I I think there was definitely different motivators back when I was younger. Has your daughter taken an interest in your running or starting to run herself? I know she's pretty young at this point. Yeah, she'll be, um, she'll be eight in the summer and, um, not really. She's more artistic. So she's likes crafts and singing and dancing and, so she's not really running herself, which is fine with me. She's a, she likes that I run and she's proud of me. And, you know, I told her this morning that I was going to run this pretend race and she was like, okay, you know, at first she didn't want to get out of bed, but like once she realized what I was going to do, she, and I told her that I was going to be on a podcast and she was like, yeah, I don't want you to be late for that. So, um, so she's definitely, you know, she's in my corner. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah. That's amazing. Take me back to the very beginnings. What was your start in the sport? Um, I th- it basically was similar to 
what I've heard other people say is it's running around, you know, at, at, in gym class and competing with the boys um, and trying to win, you know, beat the boys. Um, that's how it started in kindergarten, I think. And then our, our, our school had a local running race every spring called the Gramesville Gallop. And there was age group races and um, we got trophies. And so I would always like train for about two days before that race and, you know, try to win. Um, and then I got, you know, into gymnastics and softball in fifth and sixth grade. And my sister, who's three years older, was running on, on the JV team and junior Olympics. And I kind of got recruited by one of the umpires of my softball team to also do the junior Olympics um, because I was speedy running around the bases um, not so great at hitting or catching or anything else, but I was a good runner around the bases and he was actually the track coach as well. Um, so that's kind of how it started at first. I was like, I don't want to do this. I remember my first run going down the hill out of our driveway and I got a cramp and then I, I had to have my mom pick me up because it, you know, I was like, I'm not running. It was like a quarter mile into it. I was like, this is awful. Um, but then I think once I did the junior Olympics and got to travel and, um, did pretty well, not great, but pretty well, that was in like sixth grade. Um, then I started getting excited. And then in seventh grade, I, um, started out on the JV team and then got recruited to run on the varsity team within a couple of weeks. And I was second in the state meet, um, in cross country as a seventh grader. So, uh, then that kind of things kind of got going pretty quickly after that. Um, as far as I got recognition and the newspapers and, you know, I was the top runner on our varsity team and, um, in eighth grade, I won. So in New York state, there's classes and we were in the small school class. So that's what I came in second place in, in seventh grade, but in eighth grade, I won the overall state state federation championship and and so that that's kind of how it started and um got quickly hooked <laughs> so in a good way at first you know and i think the unhealthy parts came later were you hooked on the competitive aspect of it the fact that you were having success did you enjoy the recognition i'd love to dig into that a little bit more i did not enjoy the recognition um i would literally hide from newspaper reporters and after races. Um, but I was competitive and I wanted to win and I wanted to set course records and, um, and I always wanted to be the best at, at everything I did. So I think that was, uh, what really drove me was I was, I was the best and I want at, in our school and then I want to be the best in the state. And then, you know, looked at, being the best in the nation potentially. So, um, but also I loved, even back then I loved the process. I always loved to run fast. I've never been someone who's been good at taking easy days. Um, so that, yeah. And I can trace that back all the way back to seventh grade, just like to go hard. (laughs) So did that desire to be the best and, that tendency to go hard spill over into other parts of your life as well? Or was it just in running? 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, generally. Um, I academically, my my sister was top of her class, and so I wanted to make sure I was top of my class. And um, back in my school, we had like a GPA that was based on you know zero like to a hundred percent, and we didn't have um, um, advanced placement classes. So you were a hundred percent, you had perfect scores and I wanted to have the highest GPA ever at my school. And so that was my goal. Um, and I ended up, I got that. Um, so yeah, I was a perfectionist when it come when it came to academics and, um, and athletics, not necessarily in everything else. <laughs> I can't, you know, um, I can't say I've been the most organized or the best at, you know, other sports that I tried. But um, definitely academically and athletically and running. But it sounds like if you decided to apply yourself to something, no matter what it was, you were going to do it to the utmost of your ability. Yeah, but I think I also was very selective about what I would apply myself to. (laughs) I was only going to apply myself to things that I was good at. Um, You know, uh, and I've kind of I've tried to to get a bit, bit more well-rounded as I've gotten older, but I'm still kind of tend to do that. So, Did your parents, teachers, and coaches ever try to temper that competitiveness or that tendency toward perfectionism? Um, definitely later on in college. Um, my, I was pre-med, and my dad really uh, even – when I was one of the, you know, top pre-med students, my dad wanted me to consider becoming a PA or a nurse practitioner rather than going to med school because I did push myself so hard. And I think he, he saw that, you know, he could see into the future what that would be like for me in medical school. And certainly when I was dealing with my eating disorder, um, my parents and my coaches really tried to to understand that and to to help me pull back the reins a bit. Um, yeah, my coach would try to, would cut me out of workouts if I went too fast. So, um, there was definitely efforts at tempering my, my drive, (laughs) but I don't think, I don't think there was a whole lot of understanding of it. Um, and, and I think, you know, thankfully I think there is better understanding in, in today's time and, you know, understanding, um, the psychology of adolescents, of athletes. And, um, I think that's getting better. Let's pull on that thread a little bit more because this time period for you, I mean, correct me if I'm I'm wrong. We're talking like what, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in middle school and high school. So I graduated high school in 1994. Okay. Um, when did you first start dealing with disordered eating and anorexia? That was like, uh, I think in eighth grade or, uh, maybe more actually in ninth grade. So, um, there were other phenoms in New York state that I kind of fizzled, fizzled out after going through, um, puberty or, you know, changes and physical changes. And, um, I didn't want that to happen because I had had success in eighth grade. Um, and I wanted to, my body to stay small and stay prepubescent. So 
once I started to go through some physical changes, I immediately restricted and lost weight and, um, and didn't go through puberty at all when I probably would have in ninth grade. And, um, at, at that time I was diagnosed with anemia and possibly mono had a pretty bad cross country season in ninth grade. Um, but you know, the doctors were kind of off on their diagnosis. I think, uh, I was diagnosed with gastritis, but and I underwent endoscopy and colonoscopy. You know, we did a full workup, and um, but it was basically because that's when the the eating disorder had started, and I had started restricting and running really hard with you know no food in my body, um, and there might be you know there might have been something more going on gastrointestinally as well, but that was never really made clear. Um, it just became a, a you know, a full blown eating disorder. And so in, in ninth grade, I probably dropped from 90 pounds to less than 80 pounds. Um, and it was about the same height I am now. Um, so, and then, but I was having a lot of success in 10th grade. And so Nobody was, you know, I would throw fits, I would manipulate, I would, you know, um, fight with my parents and my coaches to not have them pester me about it. Um, and I kind of got away with that for a year and then my body kind of broke down. So, But you were fully aware of what you were doing to yourself because it gave you a feeling of control. Yeah. And I, yeah, it was the control and it was just, I did not want to go through puberty. I did not want to change. I was afraid of change, um, growing up, you know, since young childhood days. Um, and so that change just created huge anxiety and yes, so I could control not allowing, not allowing that to happen by keeping myself very small. And for a while you were still running well too. So that almost creates this false sense of security that there's not really a problem because the output is still really good. What was the first thing that happened from either an injury standpoint or some sort of falling out? I I don't know what it, what it would have been. That was just sort of a, a big kind of like turning point and maybe forced your parents to step in or forced a coach to come in and, and say something and just be a lot more frank with you. Yeah. So in 10th grade in my, in high school, um, I was third at Kinney, which is like the old foot locker cross country national championships. And then I was national champion in the two mile and outdoor track. Um, and that summer my coach had wanted me to take some time off from running, but I just got a bike and I started riding my bike like crazy. Cause I just couldn't stop exercising, um, in some form and burning calories in some form. And that summer I, my, my calves got super swollen. And I think it was because I was uh, protein deficient and malnourished. And I knew that, like I did reading about it and I was like, this is what's happening to me. It was like kind of a low level compartment syndrome. Um, but then I think I backed off a little bit, it got better. And it was going into my junior year that, um, I, we did a mile time trial in 
cross country practice and I ran terribly. And that's when my coach, my parents just got together and it's like, something's wrong. I was, you know, less than 80 pounds. And, um, they, at that point they said, you've got to go, we're taking you to see a, a psychiatrist, a eating disorder specialist, and you can't run until this is taken care of. So I think that was kind of the breaking point. And I think because I felt my body kind of falling apart, I didn't resist as much as I had in the past because there had been plenty of talk about me getting help and, you know, seeing a nutritionist, seeing a therapist, but I had kind of weaseled my way out of that with manipulation. So this had gone on for a couple of years before you got to that point where your parents and coaches stepped in. Yeah. Yeah. But they had, you know, tried and they were concerned, um, during I think ninth and 10th grade, but, uh, yeah, we, I don't think I was, you know, forced to see anybody until, um, early 11th grade in high school. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say thank you to my friends at UCAN for supporting this episode of the podcast. UCAN is unlike sugary sports nutrition because it can be used outside of training too. UCAN is based on the premise of steady, long-lasting energy with no spikes and no crash, which is exactly what you want to fuel your day. The new UCAN Energy Plus Protein features 20 grams of plant-based or whey protein plus UCAN's patented super starch energy source. Try incorporating UCAN into your recovery or meal replacement smoothies for a sustained energy boost. I've been using UCAN's performance energy drink before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it's a crucial part of my nutrition plan, providing steady energy that's easy on my gut. In this unique period where none of us are racing, it's a great time to take advantage of the opportunity to try something that is completely different than other sports nutrition. Go to youcan.co slash shakeout. That's youcan.co slash shakeout to learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy and use the code SHAKEOUT25, that's SHAKEOUT25, to save 25% off your first order. If you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% with the code SHAKEOUT. My thanks to UCAN for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When you finally did get help, you mentioned how you were a little more accepting of it at that time. What did those next few months look like for you? Yeah, so maybe a little bit more, more accepting, but basically I just wanted to, to run again. Um, so I pretty much in my mind was like, I'm going to do what they tell me in order to run again. So the psychiatrist said that I had to gain, I think it was about 10 pounds at that point before I could run. And I was still very manipulative. I would still, um, you know, drink a ton of water before weigh-ins and, um, to fake, to fake weight. Um, but, but I would also did my best to, to gain that weight. It was terrible. I remember, I remember the process. It felt awful. Um, I remember the changes my body went through and just looking in the mirror and feeling, feeling bad about myself, even though I was still emaciated. Um, but, uh, but I did it because I wanted to run again. And so probably within like six weeks, I put on 10 pounds and ate all the junk and cookie dough and stuff to, to gain weight. Didn't really see a nutritionist. So I didn't 
really invest in learning how to eat again. It was just a matter of like gain the weight so that I can run. And, um, and then I started running after not running at all for six weeks. And that was like the week before our, our sectionals and two weeks before state meet. And I won both of those, but then I got hurt. I, I developed actually just Achilles tendonitis at that point. Um, but that's when the injury cycle started, um, in my junior year going into indoor track after the cross country season. And then I developed a, a pubic ramus stress fracture after the, after the Achilles tendonitis. Cause I probably came back too soon and cross trained like a banshee and, um, you know, was way underweight and not malnourished. Um, nothing had really been fixed by just gaining 10 pounds. When you did come back to running, was it even enjoyable? I didn't really come back to running until, well, you mean when I came back after gaining weight? Yeah, exactly. After you put the time, because you wanted to get back to it so badly. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I was, I was still so much in, in the eating disorder that the whole team aspect of cross country didn't really phase me. You know, I, I, I wanted to win the state me, I didn't want to, um, to let what, you know, the weight gain change the fact that I, you know, could still win, but yeah, I, I, I would definitely say it wasn't enjoyable like it is now. It was just something that I was addicted to, you know, I just needed to get back of. to it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, yeah, it was just my identity. Um, so I didn't know anything a way to live without it. Fast forward to your last couple years of high school. How did those look for you? Because you did go on to have, I mean, still, you know, on paper, a, a very successful high school career. You went to Georgetown Division One program. You're on a scholarship. What did the those junior, senior years look like for you? Man, I I was depressed. <laughs> like I look back and I was listening to Nirvana and you know just like just the not that that's like the most depressing music, but at that time that was just when Kurt Cobain had committed suicide and I was pretty close to suicidal at that point. I had no friends. I'd lost my friends in the eating disorder. Um, I yeah, I was I was a, a sad sad person. So I still, you know, academically, I was still, um, I was valedictorian and, um, I, I remember giving my speech at the, the valedictorian speech and at graduation and it had something to do with my eating disorder. I don't quite remember it, but it was, you know, I was still in the depths of it, but I was speaking about it. Um, and just going through struggles, I guess. Um, but yeah, and so it was, it was rough. I don't have a whole lot of memories of it other than just, I was sad. I was depressed. I was nearly suicidal. Um, and, and I wasn't feeling good about my body. I wasn't, I was cross training like crazy, um, you know, hours a day on a stationary bike or stairmaster or going to the pools in our community, which were like 45 minutes away. Cause we lived in such a small town, but my parents would still, take me because I was just, I was still mean and 
and manipulative and, and addicted. Um, so yeah, those, those were rough days. Um, you know, I, I think I was recruited just because I had had success and somehow, um, somehow college coaches looked at my, my sophomore year and said, she's got potential, but I didn't, um, you know, after this state meet in my junior year, I, I don't think I ran again, um, until sophomore year in college. So it was pretty dark times. When you matriculated to Georgetown, were the coaches aware of your history going in? Um, yes, I can't quite recall the exact conversations, but I think my parents were probably pretty open about that, that, um, and I, I don't remember myself being open about it. Um, but they knew where I was at and I was still underweight and I was still, you know, I had stress fractures in concerning places. So I'm pretty sure they did. I'm, I mean, it was, it was pretty evident looking back at any photos of me, um, in that sophomore year that, that something was wrong. But, um, but yeah, I think again, there wasn't as much information back then as there is now. So I think that was kind of, um, commonplace back then. And there were, it was, their eating disorders were rampant. So I don't think that that was a, a reason at that point that coaches would say, no, you have to get healthy first. So it was more like, oh, you've got potential. So There's a lot more to your struggle that we're still going to cover. But stories like yours, as you just described, they're not entirely uncommon in the sport. What do you tell other young girls who might be listening to this and find themselves on a similar path? Yeah. So I've had, um, you know, uh, some young girls reach out to me or parents of young girls. And I think my biggest message when I think about it is that, and it's really, it's hard to explain to someone in their teenage years, but cause it, they're so short-term focused, but I can't even remember how many state championships I won. And I, nobody cares now, you know, like I, I think, um, I really feel like talented young girls and even boys need to be held back a little bit, um, by coaches and parents in their, in their developing years. And, um, because there is so much more, especially the, the really driven kids, um, you know, cause there's, there's certainly talented talent that comes through high school and then that, that keeps growing, but the, it's those really, really driven kids that I feel like do, will do better in the long term if they're held back. And I don't know if kids in their teenage years can do that on their own. Mm-hmm. They need to have, they need to have examples, um, and, you know, role models of people who, who, who have done that or have, you know, um, and also have coaches and parents who are supportive of that. Um, because it's, it's great to have your college education paid for. That's a huge, huge bonus. But again, looking back, it's nobody, nobody that's really close to me right now care, could care less about, you know, what I did in high school. So I think it's just trying to look at the long term, which is really difficult for, for teens. 
What would you tell parents and coaches who have a kid, whether it's their own or someone that they're working with who they suspect is struggling or maybe is struggling and they're not exactly sure where to turn or how to help them? Yeah, I actually just had a uh, coworker yesterday come to me about this and um, I talked to her about my own situation and just, and explained it. It's, it's really challenging. Um, but the, the kid, you, as a parent, as a coach, you need to step in. You're the adult. The, the, the kid can't make a, a good decision. Um, so you need to help them get help. But again, it's really hard because with any addiction, mental, you know, disorder, there's, there's so much manipulation that goes on. Um, so it's, you know, I want to support the, the parents because it's not easy, but, but encourage them to not let it, um, let it slide. Um, there was, there was a dad that came to me about this and I, I really encouraged him to get his daughter into inpatient help, you know, inpatient care, um, treatment and, um, and not, allow her to run. I mean, and that's what worked for me and everybody is different, but not allow her to run until the, the eating disorder was addressed. I think it's really hard for a lot of people and especially kids to, to continue to run while they're getting healthy and mm-hmm. uh, addressing the issues that caused the eating disorder in the first place. Yeah. yeah I think that's, that's super valuable information and, and very like poignant advice because I think there there are a lot of people and I think it's it's mostly due to uh, just a lack of knowledge or, or education on this but they they try to get help and solve the problem while they're still dealing with it and they still want to pursue running and they can't separate the two uh, and they just end up back in the same place that they were continually right exactly yeah and you know, again, every case is different. Every person is different. But I know for me, I had to 100% just stop running. And the second time around, the first time around, you know, um, or actually the second time around, I had to just stop exercising. I wasn't running at that point. But the first time around in, in 11th grade, there was still so much manipulation. I did completely stop running, but I didn't have a full treatment plan. I didn't see a nutritionist. So I think I think it's really important to have that full treatment plan in place. You see a therapist, you see a medical doctor, and you see a nutritionist to address the issue because it's it's a serious disease. It's not, you know, statistically, at least back when I was dealing with it, like one third recover, one third never recover, one third die um, of people de- dealing with, you know, severe eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia. So it's not something that, um, you know, as, as parents, you can just think is going to go away. Yeah. And I think it's important for me to jump in here and say, this is something that you dealt with for many years beyond what we're just talking about right now. We've only focused on your high school years, just kind of getting into college when you were still a teen, but you dealt with disordered eating into your thirties. And we're going to talk about that, but let's go to college first. Um, You ran at Georgetown division one program, had a great collegiate career. You're a five-time All-American, despite the fact that you were constantly injured. Tell me a bit about your time in DC. 
Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned before, I didn't run at all my freshman year and I was redshirted and I would cross train like crazy in the pool for an hour and a half and Stairmaster and, um, stationary bike, even though those things were not necessarily good for my stress fractures, but you know, it would, it would still hurt. It just didn't hurt as bad as running. Um, so I stayed in some kind of shape, but I was, uh, I, there was always a low level of, of depression going on during that time and, um, definitely still very disordered eating. Um, and then, uh, so indoor track of my sophomore years when I started running again and, and had pretty good, um, success pretty quickly just cause I had stayed in cardiovascular shape through cross training. Um, and by outdoor track, I, I think I ran 33, 38 as my first, um, 10k on the track. And then I ran a little bit faster at like 33 something, um, at NCAAs. And I won, I think I probably won big East. And so the, the, as soon as I started running again, I, I got in shape pretty quickly and had some success, but then, um, after NCAAs 1996, when the Olympic trials, I got really back into, uh, I lost more weight. Um, I was running, you know, close to a hundred miles a week that, that, um, summer, which was way too much for me. And, Cause I was also cross training. Um, and then I started the cross country season and I, I was in good shape and winning. And, um, then I got hurt. And honestly, I don't like recall all the, all the years of college as far as like when I was hurt and when I ran, but you know, there was, there were seasons where I was competing with Carrie Tolson and Jen Rines, and those were my main competitors. So I, I kind of look back on those days and, and, you know, it, it's like what could have been, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't really dwell on that, but too much, but like what could have been, um, if I, if I had been healthy. Well, it's hard um, not to think that way, right? You're like, they're both Olympians and yeah. I was competing with them at, a, at the same point they were at in, in their lives and I went one way and they went the other. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there was one, um, NCA cross country meet where I ended up getting passed by like 10, 10 or 11 people at the end. I came in 13th, but Carrie Tolson and I were, were going at it for the first probably two and a half miles. And then I just died. And I ended that race with one of the worst stress fractures that I've ever had, um, in my tibia and one of the worst ones that the, the orthopedic surgeon had, had ever seen on, on bone scan. It just lit up so black and, and big, but, um, so I could barely walk after that race. And that's kind of how it was. I would, I would train for eight weeks. Um, wasn't doing a whole lot of high mileage because I was cross training still a ton. Um, so my mileage was like 60 miles a week and I would cross train an hour and a half a day. Um, and then I would get hurt and often I would get hurt either right before the championship season or right after. Um, so it was kind of like an eight week on eight week off cycle throughout college. Was the success that you experienced dangerous in terms of reinforcing negative behavior patterns? Yes. Yeah. And I think also it was dangerous, um, you know, for the, from a coaching perspective, because I, as one of the, the, or one of the top runners on the team, 
it was hard to say, you know, Kate, you shouldn't be running because you're hurt. Or, you know, if if I I was clearly running on a stress fracture towards the end of the season, the coach would think that I was kind of faking it because I was too worried about going to into the championship season. Um, and I wasn't faking it, um, had legitimate stress fractures. But yeah, so I, I, I guess, and, and, but also my coach couldn't say, you know, he had to kind of push me because I was the top of the, the team and our team standing depended on me being able to compete. Um, so that was, that was complicated. The pressures of being on scholarship and, um, and knowing that I, I, you know, should be contributing to the team, to the team were, um, difficult, but, um, for me, it was, it's always really, my driving force has always been kind of like being competing against myself. Um, so again, like I wasn't maybe the best team member, um, because I was always just focused on like running my hardest or running my fastest time or, um, so the success was, was great, but it's not, it's not really what drove me. I was just, I just loved to run fast. And, um, and again, there were those pressures that kind of kept me going and pushing through injuries. So while you were in college, did you allow yourself to feel any self-worth outside of running? Mm, No, probably not. Um, you know, I had a couple good months here and there, but that those were aligned with when I was running well. Um, so again, college was a pretty, uh, depressed time for me. Um, and yeah, I had a, a, a couple friends and relationships in college, but that always was when I was running well. And then as soon as I would get injured, I would get super depressed and I, you know, break up with who I was dating or, you know, become a miserable friend. Um, so yeah, I would say I, I did not have any self-worth outside of running. Where were you at when your collegiate career ended in terms of what you wanted to do personally, professionally, and athletically? Oh uh, yeah. So my fifth year, cause I redshirted, um, my freshman year. So I had a t- entire fifth year to run at the end of the season. I was injured again and I had a terrible nationals. Um, at that point I was applying to medical schools and one of the options was stay in DC and run professionally for the Reebok, Reebok enclave and go to Georgetown medical school. Um, I was kind of one of the, I was got some awards, you know, student athlete awards at Georgetown. So it was pretty probable that I would get into to Georgetown Medical School. Um, but after that NCAAs, and I hadn't completely committed to the, whether I was going to medical school or not, I had taken the MCATs and done well, but I just was still on the fence. After um, NCAAs in Idaho, in Boise in 1999, I guess, um, I was like lapped by the field and ran terribly slow. And um, I just decided I needed to get away. I needed a complete change. I needed to go somewhere where people didn't know me. I wasn't going to be able to run professionally anymore. Probably wasn't going to run anymore. Um, you know, I had that fifth year, I had lost my scholarship. Uh, so 
and things were definitely tense with my coach. Um, and he was, you know, part of the Reebok Enclave, I think. But anyway, it, it was it was a difficult time. So I basically just said, I'm I'm moving across country, change, like going somewhere where nobody knows me. I'll get California residency. And if I want to go to California medical school, I'll um, I'll do that in a year. So I uh, packed up everything and I moved out to actually um, Clayton, California, in the Bay Area and was kind of house sitting for some distant relatives. And then I decided I was going to start riding bikes and I started getting riding bikes a lot and started dating a cyclist and um, went, uh, got a job as a medical, like, technician and then decided I didn't want to go to medical school and I went to PA school. And so I spent the next 13 years actually in the Bay area in Berkeley and Oakland cycling and going to PA school and being a PA. What was behind your interest in medicine? Oh, so that's kind of, I kind of think it's funny because it's just my way of my very black and white way of thinking. Um, because I was, a perfectionist or really competitive and top of my class, I kind of was like, okay, I'm valedictorian. I can be a doctor or a lawyer. So that's kind of how it began. It wasn't, it wasn't anything more than that. And, um, I kind of feel embarrassed about that, but that's kind of how it started. And, um, yeah. And then it was just kind of just followed that course. So you work as a PA now, if you had to go back, would you do anything differently or pursue a different course of study? Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, you know, there's, there's, I've definitely had jobs as a PA that were very fulfilling and, um, but I, I would love to be, have my career somewhat involved in either, you know, doing being a therapist or, you know, working with athletes in some way, working with sports, working with eating disorders, um, you know, do doing something more in that way. But, um, after going to PA school, getting the degree, I kind of feel like I'm a bit stuck right now. So, (laughs) so maybe, maybe in 10 years I can think about changing, but I've got a, I've got a child to support right now. (laughs) So, During your time in California when you weren't running and you were cycling, did you ever feel a pull back to it or were you pretty content to be on a bike? You're still exercising quite a bit, but did you miss running at all? Yes, um, 100%. Like that was still, you know, um, my, my first love basically. And I would occasionally try to run again. So um, probably every few months I would run a few days and something would start hurting again. And it felt like a stress fracture and maybe it was just a stress reaction, but I also had no ability of holding myself back. So every time I started running, it was like, I have to run seven minute pace or faster or it's not running. Um, so I think that was part of why I would also get hurt. But again, the, the eating disorder was pretty strong at that point too. I'd gained a lot of weight, um, but was still eating, um, very unhealthy and restrictive and kind of like starving myself through the day and then binging at night, exercising to burn off everything I ate, going, putting myself into like a very 
deprivation and starvation mode. Um, and my cycling friends could never quite understand like what, why I was so dissatisfied with my success on the bike. Um, cause I raced a bit and, uh, and I think it just, it really kind of went back to like, that just wasn't fulfilling for me. So. Did you have any big interventions during that period of time in your life where you had to confront the eating disorder again and seek more professional help? Um, I kind of kept it under the, I mean, think people knew, but they, people in California, they didn't really know my history and my friends in PA school, they just thought I was like a, a crazy exercise addict. I, I was, had gradually gained significant amount of weight. So I was no longer anywhere close to being underweight. I was probably, you know, by 2002 or so I was heavier than I am now. Um, and by, by 2011, I was like 20 or 25 pounds heavier than I am now. And that was all based on just erratic eating. Um, and, uh, so, so what was the question again? Sorry. (laughs) Um, were there any big interventions during that time or did you seek professional help to deal with disordered eating in your, I'm assuming late twenties, early thirties at that point? No. So yeah, I, as I was saying, I was kind of kept it hidden and, um, I at one point saw an endocrinologist and to have my bone density rechecked and I was in a, you know, very osteopenic, uh, state, but, um, just went on calcium, but I really, I didn't see any therapists. I didn't, I didn't go to any physicians or anything from, college to when I was 34. Um, in college, I went on and off. Like if my coach insisted upon it, I would go to see a therapist and I'll go on and off birth control to have some hormones. But I kind of just, uh, had those prescriptions and would go on and off them throughout my twenties. By the time you got into your thirties, did you just think this is how it was going to be for you? Or did you have hope that you'd be able to get through this struggle that you'd been dealing with for a majority of your life at that point? Yeah, I think I thought that that's how it was just going to be. But there was always this, this part of me that was like, if I'm just five pounds lighter, if I'm just 10 mm-hmm. pounds lighter, you know, if I just get back to this weight that I was, things will be better. I'll be able to, you know, spend more time with friends or be, um, be a happier person or, you know, so there's always that kind of pull. And so I was always trying to lose weight. Um, yeah. So I, I felt very stuck. I didn't know any, I didn't know how to get out. I thought that's what my life was going to be. I didn't think I was ever going to be able to have a child. You know, I was kind of, my goals were when I turned 40, I would adopt, I would go to Africa and I would donate a kidney or something like that. Like, you know, those were my early 30 goals. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just couldn't see the light. You did end up having a child of your own in 2012. What was that experience like for you, both in terms of dealing with your body changing and also the concerns for your health, just given your medical history. 
Yeah, so um, I really got um, eating disorder help in May of 2011, and it, things got better very quickly. And I, I really attribute part of that to just being ready, kind of surrendering say, and saying, I'll do whatever the clinicians say. They say, don't do any exercise. I'm not going to do any exercise. You know, they say, eat this much. I'm going to try to eat that much. That was the, the more difficult part. Um, they say, go on Prozac. I'm going to go on Prozac. And um, I do I do think the the Prozac was a, a key part um, because, you know, a week or two after taking it, I just, I was able to see the light. I was able to see the hope. I wasn't as self-conscious and, and um, embarrassed to go outside. Um, I think as I'd gotten pretty bad right before that. So I got better pretty quickly and I actually started menstruating within like two months or three months, but it was, you know, it was barely anything. So I didn't think I was going to get pregnant, which is pretty idiotic for someone who's in the medical field to think that. But, um, and then I met, uh, Grace's father and, um, and then, uh, as far as pregnancy went, I loved being pregnant. Um, I, the body changes didn't bother me. Um, I was in a pretty good headspace with regards to my body. Um, I felt really healthy. I was hiking and walking a lot, but not really doing any other exercise. Um, yeah. And food wise, I was good. I wasn't great. I think that's been a kind of gradual thing over the years, but, um, yeah. So, and as far as concerns, I think the bigger, the only real concern was that I was, I think they, what did they call me? Like a geriatric mother because I was over 35. Um, but so I, you know, I had, uh, I was a little older and then um, I was on antidepressants and that was a little bit concerning. I had to go off of it before giving birth and so that my daughter wouldn't go through withdrawals. And, um, but other than that, like I, I was still seeing my eating disorder doctor and my therapist and my nutritionist and, um, yeah, but that time in my life was not bad. It, it it got bad afterwards, but pregnancy and childbirth were pretty easy. Did it get bad immediately afterward or did it take some period of time? Yeah, um, it, it was probably about three or four months after. And I think part of that was due to the fact that um, we were living in the Bay Area when I had my daughter and, you know, I was I was completely on my own. Um, and I couldn't, even with a, my salary, I couldn't really afford living in the Bay area on my own with a child and paying for childcare for an infant. Um, so I, and I wanted my, maybe to be closer to my parents. So we moved back to New York when New York state, when Grace was three months and that was in November of, and the, it was winter. And I got, I think I was off antidepressants at that point, you know, postpartum and the, the snow, the cold, the isolation of upstate New York, everything just kind of um, put me in a pretty bad depression. My eating disorder kind of came back, um, even though I was breastfeeding and trying to take care of an infant, I was not eating well. Um, so those were, that was a tough, that was a tough year. What helped you turn it around? So when we, we, when I moved to New York, I got a job there and I quit the job after 10 days because they were going to make me stay in the hospital, um, overnight and I didn't have childcare. My parents were an hour away and, um, and that I went into huge 
anxiety after that, not having a job, not being happy in New York. Um, and I ended up moving back to California and living with friends in Alameda. And um, I think what honestly, again, what really helped me turn around was getting back on Prozac. And also I started to run. Um, during the months that I was in New York, my, my, I hadn't been doing really any exercise at all. Um, but my dad encouraged me to get out because he saw what a mess I was. And he, you know, my parents do believe in the exercise is good to a certain extent. Um, so I started once in a while getting out to run when I was in New York. And then that became a little bit more frequent in California. And then, um, I think honestly, it was just a lot of being on back on Prozac that helped, um, my, my brain settle down and was able to apply to jobs and get a new job and move to Washington. And, and from there, things just kept, you know, it's been a roller coaster somewhat, but, um, much more stable. So how are you thinking about running at that time? You'd been away from it for a while you started doing it again on the encouragement of your parents to help with your mental health. I'd love to just kind of get into your headspace during that time and how you were thinking about the role that it was going to play in your life then and moving forward. Yeah. Well, um, at first when I, it felt really bad and I was going really slow and I just felt just gross and sluggish. Um, I think that, but what helped me kind of turn my mindset was I was doing a kind of a internship with a family practice um, group and had to be talking to patients about exercise and taking care of yourself. And it was hard to do when I wasn't taking care of myself. And then, um, you know, thinking about, you know, setting an example for my daughter and um, those, and then getting on, on Prozac, those things combined was like, I running, running's not exercises isn't a bad thing. You know, it's, there's, there's always been in my life, like some kind of sense that it, it's bad because of what it kind of got turned into in my youth. And it, this is a good thing. This is what I, you know, this is a good thing for me. And it's a good thing for me to set an example for patients for my daughter. And so that's kind of how it started, started to feel good again. And, um, also, um, Grace was pretty colicky her whole first year and, um, I never really could put her down, but she did fall asleep for naps in the stroller. So I'd start going on stroller runs for, with her. So it was not anything like this is good. I'm going to race again. I never mm -hmm. had thought of that. It was just like, it feels good to be physically active and move my body again. Um, you know, and, and there was no sense of like, I'm burning calories or anything like that. It was like, it's, I need to get outside. <laughs> so it also sounds like for the first time, it wasn't just about you though. Um, you know, your running could provide value to other people. Um, <laughs> maybe not in that moment, but eventually, you know, your daughter or the patients that you were working with, which is very different from what you had described earlier in this conversation. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, my identity was no longer 
uh, you know, wasn't as a runner anymore. So it was kind of like, this is an additional part of me, but this isn't all of me. Um, so yeah, I would, that's a good way of, way of looking at it and putting it. Let's pull on that a little bit. How important is it to release yourself from that identity as just a runner? Because I think there are a lot of people listening to this, whether or not they've dealt with disordered eating, who can't separate themselves from that identity as a runner. And that is holding them back in some way. Yeah, I, yeah, I, um, I think it's critical, but it's really critical. And I, I, for me, cause I, I have to be able to set it aside and cause I want to be a great mom as well. And I want to do well at my job as well. Um, so I can't have it kind of be the, the focus of my life. Um, um, and I'm, I'm glad it's not anymore, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers the question really, but. No, I think it does. Um, in terms of running as a competitive outlet, when did those wheels start turning for you again that you might want to make a return to training hard and racing? Um, it was kind of gradual, but when we moved to Washington, my sister was in pretty um, heavy marathon training. I think she was training for CIM or something at that point. And we did a turkey trot together um, in November, obviously turkey trot. Um, but I had really only started running in September and I ran like 1908 or something like that. And I was just, I was so happy. I never thought I could run close to six minute pace again. Um, you know, I had been just pushing the stroller, so I didn't have any idea that I could run close to six minute pace. And so that was kind of like this first spark was like, and this is fun. You know, I didn't win, I, but I was still really happy with it. Um, so that was the first time that I actually thought like racing could be fun. I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't, it was my sister who wanted us to do that. I didn't really think of doing that before. And then I started doing half marathons locally. Um, and, and, uh, I was third place my first one, but I was happy with it. And it wasn't always, it wasn't about winning anymore. Um, and then, and then I started winning, but I, it was, yeah, I, I mean, I, it was, it was great to win, but it wasn't like such a huge focus. And, um, you know, I would, I would do them because it kind of gave me a goal. Um, I still wasn't really training seriously. I was kind of doing a lot of stroller runs and sometimes lunch runs at work, but, um, I was, you know, getting up in probably the 40 miles a week for the first year or so. So when you started having that success again and won a couple of races, did it ever concern you at all that you would kind of slip back into patterns of negative behavior or did you feel pretty confident by that point in the tools that you had developed to deal with that? Yeah, I think again, it, uh, the whole, I would say that now I feel, um, pretty much hundred percent recovered, even though, you know, you're never hundred percent recovered, but mm -hmm. I feel like no restrictions to my eating at least. And that like the letting go of the restrictions to eating was a gradual thing. I don't think it was an immediate thing. Um, but I, um, you know, I definitely was concerned. I would, I, I used, um, 
you know, make, made sure I was still getting my period and I was still menstruating to, cause I was after Grace stopped breastfeeding, I did drop some weight and, um, I was a little bit concerned, you know, cause I went down eight pounds or something like that. And I wasn't sure like what would be healthy for me. Um, but as long as I was menstruating, I felt like things were good. Um, and then I think, uh, I kind of just, my body just found a set place and things gradually got better as far as my relationship with food. Um, again, I, I need to set an example for my daughter. Um, and I, I definitely, um, my relationship with food is more like I, I, I do see it more as fuel. And I think one of my, um, my compensating compensations or one of my mechanisms of dealing with the eating disorder issues is not making food a huge focus. And that's not necessarily the healthiest attitude, but, um, you know, I, uh, this kind of off on a tangent, I guess, but, um, yeah, I, there's always, there's always been, you know, concern that it could come back or not always there was it initially, but I don't, I don't really feel that anymore. It sounds like you've been able to release yourself from it amongst amongst other things and just like being able to to do that has opened up this world of possibility for you. Yeah, yeah, it's um I again like the what I've been able to do in the past couple of years I never could have dreamed of and it's kind of just like icing on the cake because the cake is really just being able to be healthy again and run and have nothing hurt and have a child. Um, and the icing is just like, you know, having some fast times and, you know, good, good, good results. <laughs> so, Is it hard for you to balance being a mom of a young child with a high stress job and running at a high level, which is its own kind of high stress? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I have been able to com- compartmentalize, um, somewhat, with things and, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but it's gotten easier as my daughter's gotten older. Um, so I've, I've had to rely on, you know, friends for help here and there to help watch her. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy, (laughs) but it's, but it's my life. So I got to just keep doing it, you know, and I, I try not to focus on the fact that it's, that's not easy because it could be a lot harder. You know, I, I could be having to work two jobs. Um, and I don't, so. Last couple things before we wrap up here last year, you returned to Georgetown to be inducted into the hall of fame. And you described earlier how that was just a really challenging period of your life. What was that experience like for you? Yeah. Wow. That's a good question. <laughs> um, it was, it was strange. Um, I hadn't been back to Georgetown at all since 1999. Um, and some of it was strange in that, you know, I saw my coach for the first time and, you know, I, I had these mixed feelings about my time at Georgetown. Um, I had shame about my time at Georgetown, but then there was a lot of positive too, because I was in a much healthier place and, um, my teammates that were there could see that. And I got to speak to the Georgetown, uh, track and field team, um, the day after the Hall of Fame induction. So, and I talked to them about, you know, my, 
eating disorder and Maisha Marzell, one of my teammates talked about how I was so intense. It just made us laugh, but, um, it's kind of cool to look back and see that I've changed and I've grown that much, but it was a little bit, um, awkward as well because it, it was such a challenging time. Last question. What does it mean to know that sharing your story on a platform like this one is helping other people deal with their own struggles? That gives me a huge amount of purpose to my running, quite honestly, and that my story can help a few people kind of gives purpose to my life and all the struggles that I've been through because it, the struggles wouldn't mean that much if it, it doesn't help other people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've grown, grown stronger through them, but yeah, it, it's what motivates me, um, to be able to, to inspire, help others. Cause I know I listen to these podcasts and, and I'm inspired and I can relate to people and, um, and yeah, so I, I hope that, hope that it inspires, whether it inspires people with, eating disorders or depression or, you know, you know, older, (laughs) older athletes or runners, you know, that are in their forties, you know, whatever it is, that definitely is what it's about. Well, it does. You've got one person on the other side of the mic who is very inspired by many Mm -hmm. aspects of your story. So I thank you for sharing it here on my podcast. You are an incredible woman. You have an amazing story. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with others here on The Morning Shakeout. Thanks, Mario. It's, It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to UCAN for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been using UCAN's performance energy drink mix before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it's a crucial part of my nutrition plan, providing steady energy that's easy on my gut. Go to UCAN.co slash shakeout. That's UCAN.co slash shakeout to learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy and use the code SHAKEOUT25, that's SHAKEOUT25, to save 25% off your first order. If you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% with the code SHAKEOUT. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at The Morning Shakeout, John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out, Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.